Thank you. As you're being seated, let's take our Bibles and let's return to the book of Romans and chapter 3 as we pick up in verse 9 where we left off last week. And let me just again offer words of welcome to those of you that are guests uh, this morning in our worship experience, whether in person or online. Uh, without fail, each week we have those, whether they're coming out the back door and uh, let me know that they are our guests in our worship service today or others that take advantage of texting FL Respond to 833-571-3475. Uh, we enjoy being able to follow up and have conversations with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to, uh, to be a part of a community of faith and the importance, the, the vital part of being a member of a church family and uh, all of the ups and downs, the highs and lows that go with that as we as a people of God learn how to live in community with one another that we might be an effective witness to, to the world. So I hope that you will take the time to do that uh, and uh, give us that information so that we can have some meaningful conversations with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ and to help you become a, a part of our church family. Whenever my son Hunter would return home from college, those few times that he would make the drive from uh, the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, uh, several places along that drive where I would have him envisioned being, I would call and my first question always was when he picked up, where are you now? And I was always uh, frustrated somewhat by his answer to that question, because it was always the same. I don't know. How do you not know? He said, well, it just says I'm seven hours away, I'm six hours away, I'm five hours away, those corresponding times on his, uh, his Apple Maps. And uh, that, I always found that to be very frustrating. I, I just couldn't even imagine as, as someone who enjoys traveling and when I'm going to travel, I like finding out what is along the way. And uh, Patty will tell you how frustrated she gets because I want to stop at every historical marker, having researched where they all are and stopping and reading about it and see what happened at that time. And, and I just can't imagine there, there, there is so much to know, there is so much to understand, there is so much to, to experience. I just couldn't even fathom the idea of driving through Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and the greater part of Texas without a curiosity and an interest about, about where I am, what has happened before me. That's, that's the way travel can become so enriching. Travel should be a, a very enriching experience in, in life, but you, but you have to do your homework. You have to, you have to know the history. You have to know what, what, where you've been and where you're going. It has to be more than, than just knowing where you began, where you originated, and what your final destination is going to be. To me, there could be nothing more boring in travel than just knowing that I'm starting from my house and ultimately I'm going to end up somewhere else. Sadly, that is pr the perspective, I fear, of the majority of confessing Christians in the American West. That their understanding of the journey of faith is just about where I was and where I'm going to end up. It's about once not being a follower of Christ and now it's just about, it's just about living life and, and making sure I miss hell and I make it to heaven. With no interest of all the things, the experiences, the knowledge that could be had, to make this journey all the more rewarding and enriching. See, Paul's letter to the Romans, I think, helps to accomplish that. To better understand that, what it means to be the people of God from where we have come and where we 
are going. It adds a richness, it adds a robustness, if you will, to the journey of faith. So much more than just, than just missing uh, hell and, and somehow making it to heaven. Romans is that kind of book that can help us if we are diligent in our study and our reading. And I hope through the course of this study, you're not just depending upon me to read it, but in preparation for coming each week, you are reading the next significant chapters and, and verses to see what is unfolding because there is a rhetorical flow to the, to the gospel that Paul is setting forth here in the book of Romans. It's really a, a, a symphonic motion, if you will. These first four chapters, and then we will move into ver- chapters five through eight, which must be taken together, and then chapters nine through 11, and finally chapters 12 through 16. But in each one of these, Paul keeps returning to major things because Paul has raised some major issues that conflict with the norm of their thinking. You remember that Paul has already reminded those Jewish hearers that, that, would, that would be listening to his letter being read. He has already said to them that, that God is, is impartial. That there is nothing special about, about you as the Jewish people. You will not be exempt from the wrath of God just because of circumcision. Just because you have possession of the law, that does not mean that you will escape the wrath of God. God is not one to practice partiality, chapter 2 and verse 11. And then when we came to chapter 2 and around verses uh, 17 uh, through the end of that chapter, now then Paul all of a sudden is doing that which is earth-shattering to those Jewish ears. He is redefining what it means to be a Jew. That to be a Jew is no longer about ethnicity. To be a Jew is no longer about the circumcision of of the flesh. No longer is it about an exclusive possession of of the law. Now then we see there in, in verse 29 as he concludes, but he says, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter and his praise is not from people, but from God. Paul goes on in the chapter to come, the remainder of chapter three, and then we'll get into chapter four next week and a better understanding of the Abrahamic covenant that was made to Abraham, this promises, these promises that were made back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 17. But Paul goes on and, and explains further the indicting nature of, of this law that has been entrusted to, to the Jewish people. And he said, it's vital that we understand, that we be aware of where we are in relationship to the law. And he sets it out here in a a wonderful rhetorical flow. And I think it's vital for us to understand where we are, to have an appreciation of the law, the indictment of the law, the accusatory nature of the law, so that we can have a sense of awareness of where we are in our relationship to the law. Because you see, first of all, like the Jews and really all humanity, the first thing we need to recognize is that you can be condemned under the law. That's the emphasis that Paul has already been been making, has he not? You go back uh, to chapter 1, we saw how beginning with verse 17, verse 18, really, how he sets forth all these multitude of sins. And, and this is being written from the perspective of, of how the Jewish people, how a, ver- how a first century Jew viewed the behavior of the Gentiles. 
And all of these were representative of someone who had been given over to a depraved mind. But then as chapter two opened, Paul turned the tables on the Jewish audience. And he said, the very thing for which you condemn the Gentiles, you're doing them as well. You're guilty of them as well. It is the same wickedness that characterizes you. And so Paul comes to this passage in verse 9 of chapter 3 where we pick pick up from last week. He says, what then? Still writing to, to a Jewish hearer, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now, when Paul uses that word sin, he uses it in a way that it carries the same inference as you and I have in our common understanding of sin. But the word hamartia, when Paul uses this word sin, Paul sees sin as as not just our individual wrongdoings. Paul understands sin as, as having a life of its own. It's a force of its own. And so when you and I as humankind created in the image of God, when we abandon our likeness, our creativeness in the likeness of God, when we abandon our adoration and our honoring of God in our lives, we are giving ourselves over to this force that is called sin. As it is written, and then Paul goes, I'm not going to read all of these in their entirety, but in verses 10 through 18, he begins to list a a collage of sin, borrowing from Old Testament passages, Psalm 14, Isaiah 53, Psalm 59, Psalm 140, uh, Psalm 10, 7, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. He borrows from all of these, these indicting phrases that show how Jews are not living up obedient to the law. that your abuse of the law, your refusal to obey the law, that these in themselves are condemning. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul would say, as he will say in the coming verses. Jumping ahead to verse 19, having listed all the sins of the Jews. And this is just kind of a, not a prescriptive list, it's just kind of a catalog of, of Paul's knowledge of, of Scripture. And what he is doing is showing how the Septuagint, you'll find, you'll find Paul using Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. I think this is why some people, some Christians find Rome to be uh, the Roman letter, the, the letter to the churches at Rome. I believe this might be the, the reason that so many find this to be a difficult book, book because it assumes a knowledge of the Old Testament. What we would call the Old Testament, Paul, uh, Paul certainly had a familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures, but, but Paul, what Paul utilizes is, is what is called the Septuagint, the, uh, the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so the letter assumes that we are familiar, which most of us are not. It assumes a familiarity with, with the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. Things like the Exodus, things like the Abrahamic covenant. And the interesting part, if you were to go back, and I encourage you to do so, but if you go back and look at these, these indicting behaviors, these indicting statements of disobedience, it, what's interesting is these individual phrases that, that Paul has lifted and placed here as a condemnation against the Jews. Do you know they are actually framed in their original context with the promise of God's deliverance from evil? There is always that image of God acting for his people, working to redeem his people, working to deliver 
his people. And Paul will use the name of God. He will use theos for God more than any other letter in this book because what Romans is emphasizing is how the promises of God, the covenant of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It is what God is doing, what God has done, and what God will do to fulfill that Abrahamic covenant through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Remember, same thing as those that are under sin. If you are under the law, you are under sin. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. Paul's using the language here of a law court. Uh, language that would be familiar to the law court setting of, of that first century world. In fact, that, that same type of phraseology is used over in the book of Acts chapter 23. You have the law that is an accuser, a prosecutor, and you as the defendant, you would stand and in the court of law, you would stand before that judge and magistrate. And when you made your defense, when you were, when you were finished making your defense, you would cover your mouth as an indicator that you have nothing more to say. There is nothing that you can offer to defend yourself. When Paul is defending himself before the Sanhedrin, that I've lived with a clear conscience, Ananias, the high priest, demands that he be hit in the mouth to shut him up. Now that same imagery is used here so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. As we saw back in Romans chapter one, humanity is without excuse. God in various and sundry ways, as the writer of Hebrews would say, in various and sundry ways, God has revealed himself, made himself known to creation. Paul makes that same reiteration in Romans chapter one to the point that man is without excuse. There is a sense of the transcendent of how God has revealed himself and made himself known, now fully known in the person of, of Jesus Christ. Because, verse 20, because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law, the law is a wonderful teacher. You want to know what the expectation of God is, the desire of God, how his people shall then live? The law makes it clear. But as wonderful a teacher as, as the law is, it is, a, it is an unwavering prosecutor. It is an unwavering judge. And so Paul would say to the Jewish people who might say, hey, hey, now, Paul, if you're talking about the wrath, wrath of God, Paul, we have the law. We possess the law. And he said, wonderful. Yes, you have the law, but you are guilty by the law. You break one, you break all. Yes, you can have them. They're, they're yours, but you are prosecuted. You are indicted. You are found guilty by the law that you so exclusively want to possess. And so anyone who thinks that they can stand before God on that day, as it is called in Scripture, looking ahead to the final judgment of God, anyone who thinks that they can stand before God and point to the works of the law, you don't have a leg to stand on. When we hold forth the law, the law is an indicter, the law is a prosecutor. And anyone who dares to, stand, to, to think that they are made right 
righteous and right standing with God because of the works of the law? Shaky ground. It simply will not stand. There's another relationship that is possible under the law, not just condemnation under the law. But notice as Paul continues here in verses 21 through 26, and we're going to, this is really, you want to know what Paul's gospel is? This is it. I would say when it comes to understanding the gospel that Paul is trying to help us to understand, his readers to understand, Verses 21 through 26 are the heartbeat of Paul's gospel. And we could, we could spend three or four weeks on this. And, and Paul will expand, expound further upon this, on each of the, the main things that he is setting forth here. And, but I'm going to do like Paul did. I'm just going to, I'm going to roll this into one sermon because this is really the beginning of a new section here, uh, picking up in verse 1, 21, and going through all the way to the end of, of chapter 4. I'm going, to, I'm going to go ahead and roll in verses 21 through 26 into just this one message in this message because I'm going to follow the lead of Paul. Paul is going to lay some foundational things here, but he's going to come back and talk about it further in more enriching ways in the chapters that follow. It's almost like this is, this is so foreign to the Jewish thinking of that day, to Jewish understanding. I'm, I'm going to put some things out there, Paul says, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna meditate upon those a little bit. We're going to let them soak and settle and become a foundation. Then I'm going to come back and add a little more to it. And hopefully this will become a more robust understanding of where you are in the narrative of God's story and the providential purposes of God. So let's talk about this other perspective, righteousness apart from the law. This is in contrast to those who are condemned who are under the law. He says, but now, now that, that's significant. Anytime you see Paul using that little word now, get up on the edge of your seat. He's already said it once back in, in verse 19. Now, now he transitions, but now. You see, he's been talking about the wrath of God that is to come, that which condemns us, both Jew and Greek. He's been setting forth that, that the playing field is level. There is no special treatment for the Jew on the day of wrath. There is nothing. You do not get a get out of jail free card. The day of wrath is approaching and every person, Jew or Greek, is standing on equal footing. The playing field is level. But now, Moving from that future tense, the day of wrath, moving to today, right now. But now, apart from the law, not under the law, but, but apart from the law. In what God is going to do, it has to be apart from the law because we already know the law is condemning. If it's not done apart from the law also, then God will be practicing partiality, will he not? Because the Jews are the only ones that have the law. So the righteousness and the justice that God is going to accomplish has to be something apart from the law. Now, notice, he says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. That is God making things right. And remember, I've told us in the past few weeks, we, whenever we see the word righteousness, when it talks about the righteousness of God or God's justice, 
that all of these things have to be rolled into a common understanding. God's righteousness, God's justice is the work of God in riding the world, riding the ship, if you will, making things right, making them as they were intended to be. And when, when we talk about God's righteousness, as we did last week, God trying to make things right, this, this is the question and this is the struggle And how is the righteousness of God accomplished? Because all of this is tied to the promise of Abraham. And there were already contemporary Jewish writers in Paul's day who were asking the question of how is God's righteousness going to evolve? How is God's righteousness going to be accomplished? Because we know the promises that were made to Abraham regarding Israel as a chosen people, but they've rebelled. They're disobedient. They have nothing to do with the things of God. So how is God going to redeem this? How is he going to correct this? The rest of the world knows only oppressors, those who oppress them, those who marginalize others from their positions of power and prestige and influence. There's a lot that needs to be done. And so there were already Jewish writers wondering, how is God going to do this? How is God going to right the world? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's been made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, what God is doing and what God is going to do through Christ Jesus to fulfill fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Listen, we have to understand God is being true. He is being right. Uh, And he has to do it in a way that that is true to that Abrahamic covenant. Either uh, if God doesn't fulfill the promise to Abraham, then either scripture isn't true or somehow God has reneged that promise to Abraham. That's not the nature and character of God. God has to be just. He has to be righteous. He has to be faithful to the promises that were made. And now then Paul is making the assertion here in verse 21 that what I'm about to lay, what I'm about to set forth of how God's righteousness has been revealed It it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. You were just reading them wrong. You need to read them in retrospect. You need to read the law and the prophets in the light of what has been done through Christ Jesus. But it is the righteousness of God. This is how God is writing things. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Now, that, that phrase there where he says, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. In the Greek, that can just as easily be translated as the faithfulness of Christ, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And there is certainly nothing wrong with it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. But we also need to have this other larger understanding that it is the faithfulness of Christ to the Abrahamic covenant that was established by God. For all have sinned, verse 23, which is is what he's been holding forth the entire time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption. Again, another technical term. It has, to do, it has to do with the buying back of a slave from a slave market or, or buying back a, an item from, from a pawn shop. 
being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Again, it can be the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So here's the situation. God's righteousness is at stake. The justice of God, the integrity of God based upon this Abrahamic covenant. And so that what it necessitates, because Israel has failed to be obedient, the nation has failed to be obedient, the people of God have failed to be the people of God. What is necessary and what is accomplished is the obedience of just one Israelite. God needs one faithful Israelite that is obedient to the law. And it is Christ Jesus, the Messiah, who fulfills that role. And as the Messiah, as the Messiah of his people, as the Messiah of Israel, as the Messiah of the Israelites, everything that he is, they are. That is what is true of the Messiah, what is true of this one, this one faithful Israelite, what is true of them, it is true of all of them. And vice versa. What is true of him, this one faithful Israelite who fulfilled the law, who accomplished the law. And remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to, I came to fulfill it. And God needed that one faithful Israelite. And what he was, we are. What was true of him is true of us and vice versa. It says whom God displayed publicly, verse 25, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Ah, so much imagery here in the Old Testament. When we talk about this propitiatory sacrifice, this propitiation, this, this heavy theological word that, that, that is used here, it means that what Jesus did with the sacrifice that he made, that it not only purifies it not only purifies us, but it also turns away the wrath of God. The imagery is powerful here. Most of us, when we think about the Day of Atonement, we think about uh, the scapegoat. And, 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 our, and, and in our understanding, uh, what, I, what, I, what I think we default to is we think that because of sin, something had to die. That, that's not the emphasis. That's not the emphasis of this propitiation, this propitiatory sacrifice. What is significant is not that the animal was killed, but that life-giving blood was spread upon that altar, covering up the sin, covering up that which represented death. Blood is life-giving. Blood is the life force of God. And it covers up that altar. It covers up everything uh, that, that leads to death. And so here is words again. For the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at this present time. It means you don't have to wait till the end. It means by virtue of faith in Christ Jesus, the faithfulness of Christ, your belief, your commitment to the faithfulness of Christ and what God did through him. You don't have to wait till the end. But in this present time, it is your faith that marks you as a child of God, you can know that you are right with God in the present time, right now. 
You see, that's why I think this is so urgent that we have this big picture understanding of salvation and what we call the redemptive purposes of God. And it's one of the things that I talk about with individuals whenever they are struggling with with the assurance of salvation. And again, I think it goes back to this this kind of myopic view, this highly individualized uh, view. I don't know why we would be shocked by that in the U.S., but this this myopic, uh, individualized view of salvation that it's just about me and my sin. When I say, no, what, what you have to look at is the greater faithfulness of God. You have to move past this idea of salvation as just being the idea that I'm going to miss hell, I'm going to make it to heaven. There is so much more to be, to be realized, to be understood that, that I'm a part of this salvation history. I'm a part of what God has been sowing, this narrative that, that Paul has been writing uh, from the act of creation itself. You see, the, the gospel for Paul There is this rhetorical flow in the book of Romans that we have to recognize when Paul talks about his gospel, it finds its origin in the creation act itself. Listen, we fail miserably when we think about, when we think about our relationship to Judaism, when we think about our relationship to the Old Testament, we are grossly negligent. And and sadly, many preachers have taught this. That somehow that, that all oh, the, the old law, the Old Testament's about the old law, the old covenant. And, and, but God got to a place where he just realized that wasn't working anymore. So he just threw his hands up and said, you know what? I'm just going to wash my hands of all this. And we're just going to start everything from Jesus forward. No, no. Ours is a very robust and rich legacy of faith. Do you know when, when, Paul, when, when, when God made the covenant with Abraham, God didn't get concerned about about sin just starting with Jesus. Paul, Paul, or God rather, made this covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, he makes this covenant and this, this relationship with Abraham to correct the error of sin back in Genesis 3. So that it might get back to being what the world is supposed to be, Genesis 1 and 2. So you have the garden events and Jesus and of, of God, the creation, the act of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. You have the sin of Abraham, which set forth this, this storm of consequences. By chapter 12, God is saying, you know what? We're going to correct this. We're going, to cor- we're going to correct the wrongs of humanity, the evils of humanity. And we're going to make things right again. The righteousness of God will not be Denied. Oh, it's meaty. It's chunky stuff here. <laughs> and we're going to talk more about the law when we get to, I mean, it, it's in detail when we get to, to chapter 7. But we've got to have this appreciation of understanding the salvation, the rhetorical flow of this gospel that really finds its origin all the way back in creation itself. It's just this consistent thread of what God is doing, of how God is faithfully acting. And part of the assurance that we have as believers is that we're a part of this grand redemption that God is accomplishing. As we will see as we get further in Romans, all of creation groans for the day of redemption. And God desires to use us. We're one of the resources that God is is utilizing as a church in the mysteries of God. You and I play this vital role. So we have to move past this idea of wondering if I'm forgiven for my sins. 
I wonder if I'm going to heaven when I die. Yes, yes, and and I'm not diminishing that. That that is a promise, is a part of this, but it's just a fragment of the greater redemption that God is accomplishing. And friend, listen, you can be assured that if God is faithful to the covenant of Abraham, he's he's gonna be faithful to you. In your faith expression, in your belief, in your trust in him. Final thing, very quickly. And it will not be as long as that section. And think about where you are in relationship to the faith. Either condemned under the law, righteous, apart from the law. But here's another one, celebrating the law of faith. And here's why I use celebrating, because Paul asked the question there in verse 27, where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? Now that word sounds very negative from our English ear, from our English speaking perspective. It, it, but in the Greek, that word that is translated here is boasting, unfortunately. It, it, it's not something that is connected to ego as it sounds to us. Arrogant ego, boasting. But it's more the tune of celebrating, celebrating what God has given to us as a Jewish people. Where then is the celebration, the boasting? Paul said it's, it's been excluded. You have no special footing. You were given an advantage, a privilege of of being entrusted with the oracles of God, all the words of God, and you failed in that task to be a a guide to the blind, a light to the world. So the playing field is is level, Jew and and Greek. It's been excluded by, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Notice that. Justify the circumcised, that is the Jewish people, by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one, speaking of God. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Far from it. Paul says it's still significant. It's what God has accomplished, what the law has pointed to. On the contrary, we establish the law. As weighty and substantive as the, as the Mosaic law was, as the, as the Torah was and is, reminding us, indicting us. Listen, here, here's, an, here's another law with no less weight. While we are indicted by the one, we are set free by the law of faith. This is the promise of Abraham. It was always by faith. The prophets knew it. The law knew it. It's always been by faith. What I love here is everybody is united under one God. He says, since indeed, verse 30, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the circumcised and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Hear, O Israel. You can hear the Jewishness in it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Monotheism, one God for all people. You see why our role is so vital in the redemptive purposes of God, what was given, as we saw, what was, 
what was given in chapter 3 and verse 2, what was entrusted to the Jewish people, has now been entrusted to us, the contemporary Jews, the church. We need to know where we are. We need to know who we are. We need to know where we are in the narrative of God's salvation history. This is so much bigger than a constant preoccupation with myself and my sins. We need to see the faithfulness of God, faithful to his Abrahamic promises, no less faithful to us in our commitment to him. It's only as you comprehend this, as you understand this, that you can experience the richness and the fullness and the robustness that God would desire for you to have in your journey of faith. But you've got to look up. You've got to hunger and thirst for this knowledge, this knowing what it is of which we're a part. Years ago, in Scientific American, there was a story about London taxi drivers. Apparently their hippocampus is larger than, more developed than, than average people, than those that were in this other control group. But, but apparently there, it's a very rigorous exercise to become a cab driver, a taxi driver in London. You have to go through a four years of training and all you do for those four years is you ride a moped around for four, four years memorizing 25,000 streets. Most cities are laid out and they're platted out, major cities, you know, New York City, Paris, France. And, uh, you know, most of the major global cities of the world are platted out in a way that can quickly be figured out, but not London. It looks like, uh, it's like some kid in Sunday school took a bunch of yarn and glued it to crepe paper or something. There's just yarn going everywhere. So there's some 25,000 streets that they have to memorize. And apparently their brains enlarge, their memory capacity enlarges as they, as they, as they and only 50% pass the test after four years. Uh, where, there's, where there's traffic jams, they, in their mind, can immediately start fashioning decisions in their mind, taking this route, this route, this route, this route. N.T. Wright, British scholar, had the opportunity this week to sit under him for a four-day summer intensive. He said when he first went to London, he said, all I did was take the subway from a place of origin to a place of destination. He said, one of the, the few times I ever went up top into the city, he said, I had no idea where I was. And he said, I missed out on so much of the richness that I, that I could have experienced as a student because I just stayed underground, going from a place of origin to a place of destination. Don't let that be you in the journey of faith. You are crippling yourself and missing out on so much if you think the journey of faith and to be a follower of Christ is just about missing hell and making it to heaven. Embrace the richness of your journey. Know where you are. Let's pray together. Father, might we open our eyes and be enlightened to all that you would have us to know and understand and experience in our relationship with you. Of this great heritage of faith of which we are a part, to which we are called as the people of God and the implications of that in all of time and eternity, but no time as such as this, the present time. And the urgency of this present time to truly be the people of God, to be salt, and light to be a guide to the blind. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.